2: Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African American community.
1: Good evening, I'm Liz Mitchell. There have been calls for a federal investigation into the police action shooting death of Jalen Walker, who was shot. 60 times after fleeing a traffic stop on June 27th. According to the New York Times, Walker was unarmed when he died and had no criminal record, the paper reported.
2: The eight police officers involved in the shooting were placed on administrative leave, according to the paper. And after a video of the shooting was released, protests erupted in Akron over the weekend Leading to the arrest of about 50 demonstrators, according to the Washington Post.
1: The deadly shootings of unarmed black men and women by police officers in the US have increasingly garnered worldwide attention over the last decade. Tens of thousands of people across the country have taken to the streets to protest police brutality of blacks by mostly white officers.
2: Some 5,367 fatal police shootings were reported by the Washington Post from 2015 to May 2020. Missing details on race or ethnicity or age left a total of 4,653 deaths for analysis. Now, of that number, 4,653, half the shooting fatalities were of whites at 51%, followed by Blacks at 27%, Hispanics at 19%, Asians at 2%, and Native Americans nearly 2%. Now given the racial ethnic proportions of the United States population, the disproportionate killings of Black, Indigenous, and people of color point to a public health crisis, say the researchers. The average age at death was 34, but Black victims tended to be younger, at 30, while white victims tended to be older, at 38.
3: and we'll take that ride cross this bloody river to the other side. Forty one shots cut through the night. You're kneeling over his body in the vest of you, Pray. Life. Well, is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. It ain't no secret. Ain't no, secret. Ain't no secret, my friend. You get killed just for living you your American skin. Lena gets her son ready for school She says, on these streets, rules You've got to understand the rules If an officer stops you Promise me you'll always be polite And that you'll never ever Mama, you'll keep your hands inside. Will, is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. It ain't no secret. It ain't no, secret. no secret, my friend. You get killed just for living You're a
2: song by Bruce Springsteen it was entitled 41 shots and then it's dedicated to Amadou Diwolo who in the early hours of February the 4th of 1999 uh, this unarmed 23 year old Gannon student was fired upon with 41 rounds and shot a total of 19 times by four New York City Police Department plainclothes officers and these men were Sean Carroll Richard Murphy Edward McMillan and Kenneth Boss Carroll would later claim to have mistaken him for a rape suspect from one year earlier. The four officers who were part of the now-defunct street crime unit were charged with second-degree murder and acquitted at trial in Albany, New York. A firestorm of controversy erupted after the event as the circumstances of the brutal shooting prompted outrage both inside and outside of New York City. Issues such as police brutality, racial profiling, and contagious shooting were central to the ensuing controversy. (laughs) Joining us once again is Leon Bates, a PhD student in the Department of Pan-African Studies at the University of Louisville, Kentucky. He focuses on urban history, i.e. education, (laughs) housing, labor, medicine, policing, and violence, and the intersection of race. Leon has conducted extensive research on racialized violence. Now you may recall several weeks ago he joined us for a discussion on lynching in Indiana. He joins us now to discuss his research uh, on national police action shooting deaths of blacks. Once again, Leon, welcome to Bring It On.
3: Thanks, for Welcome, me. Leon.
2: <laughs> we are, we are we're, it's sort of an inside uh, uh, a joke we have, nothing <laughs> reflective of the topic matter. You almost have to laugh and crying, But Leon, here again, we, we have this recurring pattern of a police action shooting. It's not so much that the shooting occurred because these things, I guess, go on weekly without being reported, but this Mm -hmm. one like uh, the DeWallo case, this gentleman was shot 60 times. Now, some will say he evaded police as our introduction said, and took off and did not wait. But, and I will ask a a trainer at, at some point, does the training say, use a maximum overkill to stop what is perceived as a fleeing felon? Then to find out that he didn't have a gun when they found it but then again they said he threw it out of, of, of a, a fleeing car so anyway leon welcome back um can you kind of help us make sense of what's going on
0: yeah I, I can try and do that um in the case of uh, uh jalen walker in uh, in akron ohio from the videos that i've seen um, the police attempted to stop him at night and he fled these traffic stops at some point he jumped out of the vehicle, he ran from the police officers. And at some point, somewhere around eight or nine officers were in a foot chase and shot him. And all the officers fired at him. That's why you have that number of somewhere around 60 gunshots. and 60 hits, his body was hit 60 times, but the number of shots fired now was 90 or 91 shots. So you had multiple officers firing at him. they said after the uh, shooting during the investigation, a gun and extra clip were found in his vehicle, but not on his person. Mm. Um,
2: Thank you for that correction.
0: Yeah. It, and they, they I've seen the photograph. They claim this this gun was found in the vehicle. So, um, you know, you, you take it for what it's worth. The, the gun was in the vehicle. They said he fired out the window at him, and then he ran from him. So the problem with this comes down to what some academics have started to call contempt of cops when you fail or refuse to follow the instructions of a police officer, um, that causes all of these reactions, extreme reactions, and many of them violent, and they have um, tragic outcomes. They don't have to in this way, but they often do in this way. Um, one of the questions becomes, why is it, and this has come up just since uh, Mr. Walker and uh, uh, Patrick Leoyo in uh, Grand Rapids, Uh, and several others just here in the last few months, and with the gentleman who was earlier this week apprehended after the shooting in, uh, in the Chicago suburb, why is it that when you arrest a white suspect who is accused, believed to have at the time shot and killed at least five and put somewhere around 24 to 30 more in the hospital, but he's taken in custody, unharmed, there was a man last week who shot and killed two police officers in Kentucky and wounded five more police officers. He was taken into custody unharmed. Again, this was a white man that did this. When you look at Mr. Walker, you look at Philando Castile, you look at um, the other gentleman that happened just after uh, the trial of, for uh, for um, Derek bro. Chauvin, the police officer who killed oh. uh, who killed George Floyd. Uh, All of these people are being stopped. They're they're having interactions with the police department for infractions. I mean, the the one young man was stopped because he had a scented uh, pine tree thing hanging from his mirror. Um, These are just basic infractions of the law. I mean, they're not major crimes. They typically would not involve any jail time. There'd be a fine, you go on your way. So why is it that these people interact with the police and end up in these fatal situations. I think in the case of Mr. Walker over in uh, in in Akron, he was being stopped for a taillight violation. Taillight violation is not a crime you're going to go to jail for. Why did Mr. Walker flee? I don't know. Uh, there could be a lot of reasons for that. Um, probably one of the ones that we should think about is the United States has a long history of harsh punishment for African-Americans who violate um minor infractions and what i'm getting at is uh in the 19th century at the end of the civil war during the jim crow period african-americans not just in the south but in the north as well were often um penalized and often imprisoned for interracial dating it was a crime in the state of indiana for a black man and a white woman to be married and they enforced it so rigidly that they would even imprison the ministers who performed such ceremonies. There's a case from 1877 in Indianapolis where a man, well I'll take it back, it wasn't Indianapolis, it was uh, Hamilton County, so um, the Noblesville area, uh, that man was imprisoned for a number of years for being involved with a white woman with a less than honorable reputation in Hamilton County. He was sent to the Indiana State Prison. So if you think about it from that respect, you can kind of understand why people would run from the police when you face such harsh penalties. The police have a reputation for shooting and beating and killing people, especially people of color. Um, There is a level of earned fear, learned fear. The police on the other hand um, have this mentality that their word is law, you can't refuse. You cannot argue. uh, And they take it to the point of where you can't talk back. If they take you questioning them or you challenging them as talking back like you might talk as an adult to your child, as a parent to your child, they're talking you, people would say. Um, That's a hard thing to get adults to swallow when you start telling them they can't talk back. They have to just listen to you and not have anything to say. Um, When you start talking about you're going to arrest them, take them to jail, yeah, people have a fear of jail and prison, and it is a, uh, it's is a—it's not hyperbole, it's not uh, its not their imagination. It, it is real to, to fear what can happen to you in a prison or a jail. People have died numerous times, and one of the favorite things to say, I shouldn't say favorite, but one of the things that happens often is, and it's not happened so much in the latest, in modern history, and probably the closest one to that would be Sandra Bland in Texas, who was f- arrested by a Texas state trooper for a minor traffic stop. And then she um, disagreed with the police officer and had words with him on, and they caught it on videotape. He arrested her, and then a couple of days later, she's found unresponsive in her cell in Texas. Um, and there's been no explanation as to what happened to her, how she ended up dead. They had an autopsy and an a internal investigation. But they cannot say that anyone caused her death, or they will not say anyone caused her death. But when you have things like this happen, this causes people to fear the police and fear interacting with the police. So that can halfway explain why Mr. Walker may have tried to flee the stop. He was afraid.
1: Well, Leon, let's start and tell our listening audience um, why uh, patrollers were created in the first place. How Mm -hmm. did police department in America, the patrollers got started in the first place? And maybe that will explain, the fear, and and where this all started to begin with?
0: Uh, policing in America has two parallel starts. You have policing, as we kind of know it and understand it today, starts in Boston in 1832, and it's imported from London, England. And policing, that concept was basically social control, to get people to stop drinking on the streets, stop brawling on the streets, to get uh, prostitutes to stop conducting business on the street. Patrolling starts in the South, in the, the Confederate slave-owning South. And there were what are what's known as slave patrols. And the slave patrols basically uh roam the streets, and not streets, but the roads around the uh around the cities and into the countryside at night looking for slaves who were out when they should not be. And if they caught you, they typically would take you back to wherever you belong. Oftentimes you would be disciplined physically punished beaten for being out on the road without permission and people had reason to fear this because these beatings oftentimes were severe they usually did not end in killing because if you killed that slave then you owed that enslaver the value of that slave so the slave patrollers typically did not kill the slaves they came in contact with but they would be brutal with them so that was another reason to fear them and at the same time, we're talking about just we have to understand that many states had on their books, many slave holding states had on their books laws that made it illegal for African-Americans to strike, to hit a white person. You didn't have to kill them. If you hit them, that was a death penalty offense. So you could not defend yourself. You, you did not have the legal right to defend yourself. That was illegal. No matter what this white person was doing to you, you could not fight back. And you couldn't talk back either. You could not talk back. Talk, talking back was an offense that could get you, maybe not killed, but could get you severely hurt. Uh, talking back to your owner, especially when in a bad mood, the owner might uh, might kill a slave for talking back, but the patrollers typically would not. But that did not stop the patrollers from giving you a good beating for talking back to them. So
1: then, and, and this carried forth in, in the police departments, when at one time you just had white police department uh, police officers on the
0: departments, you couldn't talk back. Yes, that, that same mentality carried forward from the 19th century into the 20th century. And we have to understand that we did not have African-American police officers in the United States until the, I don't remember the dates for the first two. Indianapolis became the third city in the United States to employ African-American police officers in 1876. Um, Prior to that, Columbus, Ohio and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania were the only other two cities that had African-American police officers. And think about that for a minute. This is before 1876 and Columbus and Pittsburgh employ African-American police officers, but you had cities like New York, Washington, DC, Baltimore, all with larger populations and larger African-American populations. But these Midwestern cities decided to employ African-American police officers. And almost invariably behind each one of those cities and these incidents, it was an incident that caused that to happen. Um, In Indianapolis, it was the police shooting an unarmed African-American in the back who ran from the police officers. And they were held, they were put on trial. And to my knowledge, they were the first two in Indiana and probably the United States to ever be called to account for shooting an unarmed African-American. Now their trial ended with them being found not guilty. And that set off another political storm in Indianapolis where uh, the black community was in a uproar and then a large part of the white community got in an uproar behind that. And the mayor of Indianapolis, a man named John Kaven, um, finally called in. When I say finally, I mean, this happens, the man is shot March 1st, 1876, and they hired the first black police officers, I believe it's May 17th, 1876. So two and a half months from the time the man is shot to trial happens. And then the first four, two African-American policemen were hired, an African-American jailer and four African-American firemen. Um, That was done in response to that shooting. And the mayor called his 75 member police force in to a meeting. And when the meeting was over, he had terminated 25 of the 75 officers, put 10 on a recall list, and the other 15 were permanently terminated with not to be rehired. And then that allowed him the room to hire the African-American police officers and firemen without having to adjust his budget and ask for more money. And uh, even though it may seem like it was progress, and it was, what that also did was to, it desegregated the police department and the fire department, but it did not integrate them. All the black firemen were in one fire station together. The police officers were patrolling the black neighborhoods. And the police officers, even though the law said as a a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, you had the authority to arrest anyone in your jurisdiction for any crime. The African-American police officers were told in no uncertain terms were they to arrest a white man. If they were to arrest a white man, the police department may not stand behind them when it went to court. And the courts, the judges and prosecutors may not look favorably on this. So that went on until the 1960s in Indianapolis before they finally gave the uh, black police officers full authority to arrest a white suspect. If you saw a white man commit a crime, the most you could do was ask him to stand there and wait till a white police officer came and a white police officer arrested him. You could not arrest him. You could lose your job if you did so. If that arrest went bad, you could lose your job. But that is how we got to where we are now with policing and Black people being police officers and Black people being afraid of police officers. There is good reason to be afraid of policing the way it is conducted today. And it has been conducted like this basically since um, emancipation. Before emancipation, African-Americans had a cash value. And if you were to kill or destroy that private property, you destroyed that value. And then you owed that enslaver whatever that value was, once emancipation comes, there's no more cash value. Now you don't have to worry about killing this person because if you do, there's no there's no monetary uh, penalty or, or, or uh, cost to it. And in most cases, the courts are willing to turn a blind eye. And in the case of the one in, in Indianapolis, uh, the gentleman's name was Edwin Phillips. Phillips ran from two police officers. Actually, it was three of them, but two were involved in the shooting. He ran because he had a warrant for his arrest for his involvement with a white woman and he was afraid they would put him in prison so he ran they shot him and he eventually died from those wounds a few days later and they eventually forced that particular case into court which was a surprise but in getting it into court the judge actually said at once the trial was over he told a newspaper reporter he believed that the police officers were overcharged and that was in 1876 so when you hear people saying that you know we got this police officer indicted you know and then the case falls apart you know they can't convict him um The one in uh, North Charleston, South Carolina, where the officer shot the man running from a stop for a broken tail light. The state could not get him, could not convict him for the murder charge. But the federal government got him for a civil rights violation. I'm curious, uh, And and what kind of bothers me is
1: the police officers will say they fear for their life. But in, in most of these cases, they shoot a man in the back. So Mm -hmm. in those early cases, Leon, were these men shot in the back? That first case in Indianapolis, was that man shot in the back? And in most of the cases that you have looked into, were they shot in the back? And how is a policeman or anybody fear for their life if the person's running away?
0: Well, the fear for their life is a legal tactic that has been developed since um, the 1970s. There was a case in Tennessee where a young man, a teenager, was accused of breaking into a house at night. Police officer showed up and he saw this kid run through the yard and try to go over a fence and he shot him and the kid died. Eventually, it worked its way through the courts and it came down to the police officer didn't know if he had a weapon. He was afraid he had a weapon. He was running when the police officer shot him and there's a doctrine in U.S. law that talks about shooting a fleeing felon and he shot him and eventually the U.S. Supreme Court in a split decision decided that, yes, you could shoot a fleeing felon, but they went one step further and said, it's in the officer's perception at the moment that he perceived danger, perceive a threat in, in that uh, split second decision that they make. And that's why you keep hearing that being brought up is that they are trying to you know create a narrative that, well, it may look bad to you that he shot this person in the back, but there's always um, the person turned toward me He reached for his waistband. Uh, He charged me. And it's the officer's word against the dead individual's word. And sometimes there's witnesses. Sometimes there may be video here in the last few years. You may have video of it. And the argument becomes that in that split second, in that moment of decision, the officer decided to use deadly force because he felt threatened. But it's all based on some court cases where the courts have decided that they give the deference to the officer. So when the person is shot in the back, you know, as the case of Edwin Phillips, he was shot in the back below the waist, below the belt. And he was going over a fence. So you know what part of his body was exposed when the officer shot him. The bullet traveled from below his belt up through his uh lower torso and tore up internal organs. And that's what caused his death. What's interesting when you read the newspaper accounts is that the officer who shot him, um, says, basically, he's only just in fill in the blank. And that, what's the big deal? He just shot him in his fill in the blank. Um, and that's what was in the Indianapolis News, if I remember correctly, the paper that actually printed that story. And the officer who shot him felt no remorse, You know, no big deal. You know, Hey, he got what he deserved. That was the mindset in 1876. And that mindset really has not changed in that time period since that happened, we also need to remember that the US Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision, Chief Justice Roger B. Taney, in his opinion that he read from the bench, said African-Americans, he actually said uh, Negroes, if I remember correctly, the Negro had no right that the white man was obligated to respect and that the Negro could be reduced to slavery for his benefit. Now, this is our U.s Supreme Court to sing these things and these things keep coming down through laws we they, we talk about precedents starry decisis. this is the other side of precedent starry decisis no one talks about these precedents have, have a long history in. US law and most of us don't realize it we never really interact with it until you interact with the police and a tragedy happens and then an attorney will tell you you don't have much of a case or much of a chance of winning a case against a police officer. Uh, it doesn't happen that often what happened to? Derek Chauvin, in the case of George Floyd, that's an anomaly. That's not what normally happens. What normally happens is like what happened to Breonna Taylor. And even that is somewhat of an anomaly. They got one of the police officers in in court before a jury. And even they couldn't convict him. But they shot into this woman's house in the middle of the night. Um, She was not armed. Her boyfriend was. And he was inside the apartment with the door locked. And they broke the door down. And he thought it was a home invasion. He fired the gun before he realized it was the police um and no one's held accountable for this Um, what happened to brianna taylor is not as unusual as we might think
2: at this point i i need to insert an id if you've just tuned in to bring it on uh, we are having a very stark conversation with phd student and researcher leon bates uh he's joined us to discuss his research on national police action shooting deaths of black individuals And, and i want to piggyback on your on your um, contributions, Leon, by saying something that you mentioned earlier about the psychology behind all this,
3: mm-hmm. that
2: there there seems to be the psychology that's transcended down through the generations on both sides. Um, one, yes, it's easy to sort of dissect the black mentality because being African-American, we've heard stories uh, from parents, grandparents, great grandparents, whatever. We've heard mm-hmm. these stories from relatives, friends, and being white, um, you're left to sort of connect some dots here about the brazenness of some of the shootings that are going on and the rationale. And of course, you're, you're citing um, uh, case law on what has been given, uh, has probably given people the, the latitude to continue on in, in certain behaviors. As until, until recently, we see perhaps uh, because of public unrest uh, people taking a more thorough search judiciously and coming up with some some reasonable re- uh, reasonable um, rulings. Let me let me let me also cite something that we played that song "41 Shots" by Bruce Spring Springsteen, mm-hmm. um, uh, the Bruce, and um, you know known for "Born in the USA." I mean, you talk about a patriot singer. You can't get more patriot than that. But that's a chilling song. Uh, it's almost it, it almost ranks up there with uh, "Strange Fruit." Right. As I listened to it, I, I was struck by the segment of the song where Bruce Springsteen starts talking about a conversation between a mother and her son, where they have the, the talk. I hate that phrase because it conjures up in, in the minds of so many people what we've been sort of reduced to. We should never have to have the talk, but we have the talk. And she's, and she's literally telling him in a song, if you're pulled over by a police officer, you do everything they tell you to do. And you know, it's like the, the talk that parents have with their child before they walk out the door, hoping that they'll return again. And then you, you look at history, you're reciting Dred Scott, but then you look at the three-fifths a man clause in, in the in the Constitution mm-hmm. that was removed. Psychologically, three-fifths of a man. We were reduced to animals. You know, in the military, uh, as they train their their infantry or whomever will be bearing arms in combat, they, they train them to look at the enemy as less than human mm-hmm. so that they can dispatch them without guilt.
0: That, the military in, in, in training their troops to do that comes out of research the US Army did after the Civil War, when they discovered that some soldiers never fired their weapon, or if they were using the weapon, they sometimes loaded four or five shots into a, a weapon. In other words, we're talking about the muzzle-loading rifles, and they would pour the powder and shot down the rifle and pack it down with the uh, with the ramrod, and then they would point it and forget to put the primer on it, pull the trigger, and then they would reload it again, and that was part of the psychology of what they were doing. Then you go into World War I and World War II, and they realized that some soldiers still either did not fire their weapons or were not firing them accurately. And that came down to the idea of shooting at a person. We used to use um, t- uh, paper targets. And we use mainly two types. What most people are familiar with is the bullseye target, You know, the set of circles on a, on a large sheet of paper or the Canadian bull, and it's hard to describe what a Canadian bull's eye looks like, but you can Google one and you can see it on the internet. And those are the two types of targets that we were training on. The U.S. Army sometime after Korea, the Army and the Marine Corps switched to using what's known as a silhouette target. And the silhouette is just the outline of the upper torso of a human being. And that was to desensitize you at shooting at a human figure. Now the U.S. Army uses a pop-up target. So you go out on the range and you don't see any targets, but as you're sitting there, targets will pop up. They're controlled by a computer and they will pop up and they're approximately three, three and a half feet tall. And you have X number of seconds to shoot that target in order to qualify with your weapon. But that's to desensitize you and as to shooting at a human being. The police in this country have switched to using those kind of tactics to where now they use pop-up type targets. They use the ones that are in the the uh, simulated windows in the building and now they've even gone to using a computer generated scene where a person will all of a sudden jump up or pull a weapon or whatever. And then they call it the shoot, don't shoot scenario. Well, it's great to teach an officer how to, you know, quick draw and shoot and kill someone. But when you put on top of, we've also been conditioned in this country to see African-Americans as dangerous, as criminal. in this conditioning has been done to all of us, but it has a different effect on the white population. And it's the kind of thing that we don't necessarily see and understand until we really start to think at, think about it and examine it. And one example of the criminalization of African-Americans is that the United States government, after the Declaration of Independence and after the American Revolution, when we're putting together the US government together and we finally get it formed in 1789, and get our first president elected well one of the first things we do is we create the fugitive slave law of 1793. that's right and the fugitive slave law basically makes it a crime for an african-american to seek his or her freedom Mm -hmm. and underlying that law in seeking it's a federal law that says that it's illegal and this is tied to that three fifth clause you were talking about a minute ago, that you cannot do this. That is on top of, in many states, it's illegal for you to hit a white person. It's it's almost illegal to talk back. It's definitely not an accepted cultural practice. So African-Americans are criminalized almost from day one in this country. And if you think about it from the spec, okay, we have made that law, you know, null and void. But that idea is still out there. That law is still in the books, just so we know it's there and what it was, but then the law has been made null and void, so it's not effective, but we can still go find it. And then the United States in 1851 creates the second fugitive slave law, which is even more punitive than the first, Mm -hmm. making African Americans criminal. This is the only group that this is done to the closest next to that will be native americans where they are classified as not americans up into the mid-20th century they are not americans and still when you hear them talked about and their reservations that they live on their reservations oftentimes are technically not a part of the united states it's a totally separate you know part of of, of the world basically and u.s laws have no uh, no influence there Police officers have no jurisdiction there. Up until recently, the only people who could go on an Indian reservation with any authority was the US Army. Now the FBI can do it, but still, they need to interact with the tribal police and the tribal um, legal system. They just can't walk in and do what they want. There are established long standing precedents, laws, and rules about how they can interact. So they are treated differently than um, the white population. So when you hear, and I'm going to get a little bit off track here, but when you hear people say that you know they celebrate the Confederate flag and the Confederacy and its history and, and, and all these kind of things, it's their heritage. At the same time, these same people will tell you that we need to get over racism and need to get over Jim Crow and need to get over all these things. Well, how do you get over the Confederate flag and racism? And people keep bringing this thing out. How, how do you get over this when you keep seeing it? And then when you know that the police officers are carrying out some of the same tactics and same mindsets that have existed in this country almost from day one. African-Americans get to the United States in August of 1619. And they are enslaved when they're brought here. From the very day they arrive, they are enslaved. What a lot of people don't think about is that those 20-odd Africans, as they're noted in the records, arrived. Fourteen months before the Pilgrims, everyone learns about in school. Now we all learn about the Pilgrims get here in 1620 and they have the big, you know, the the big cookout dinner with the Native Americans and yada yada yada. Every kid in America is taught that. What you're not taught is that 14 months earlier, a year and two months, the slaves arrived, and the slaves, you know, continually laws are laid down on Africans and the African people of African descent down through the years. And another thing we need to think about and talk about, it's not just laws, it's policies, because the law says what they can and cannot do, but then the policy becomes, how is it enacted? In other words, it's legal basically to shoot a fleeing felon under certain conditions, but it's how that is used. This goes back to what we said earlier about these white men have shot, think about the, the young man, Dylan Roof, who shot nine people in uh in Charleston at Emmanuel AME Church. He is arrested without incident and then taken to a Burger King, and they buy him a Whopper and a Coke before they take him to the police station. Then you think about Amadou Diallo, as you spoke of earlier, who is going home late night, hasn't bothered anyone. These police officers mistake him for someone that they want for a crime. And they run out in a group screaming and hollering and shouting profanities with guns drawn And English is not Mr. Diallo or was not Mr. Diallo's first language. And he's terrified. He goes to hand over his wallet. And one of them said he saw it and yelled gun. And they shot him. I think they hit him 19 times. 19 times, yes. Because he pulled a black wallet out of his pocket and was trying to give it to them. He was terrified. He didn't know if he was being robbed or they wanted his identification. But he was trying to comply. But the police officers all started shooting because he moved. And they said they felt threatened but you run up on a man in the dark and you start screaming and shouting and shouting profanities. Um, I don't know what any of us would do in that situation, how we would react.
2: Well, contrast that with what just happened on the 4th of July. Uh, This white man dresses in a dress, climbs up the fire escape of a building at a high vantage point and begins to just unload on the crowd below. Everyone scatters, swat whatever gets in, but yet he evades arrest and for I think an hour he was, or two hours he was listed as a person of um, interest. Of interest wasn't labeled a criminal, but then later that night, or maybe the next day, you know, headlines that he's been arrested, and they show the images of him lying on the ground, and he was on his way to Wisconsin.
0: He had been to Wisconsin and back because um, he was
2: going to do it. Again up there, but then he didn't plan it out properly. So. Uh, I
0: I did not hear where they said he was going to do the second shooting, but they're saying now that he had a second location he was going to target. Um, he gets up on the roof of the building in uh, Highland, in yeah, in Highland, Highland and he he gets up on that roof and he opens fire with an automatic rifle and fires into the crowd. And the police, unlike yuvaldi a few weeks ago, when they hear the gunshots, they're already out doing traffic control for the parade. They're already there and they hear the gunshots, they go running to the gunshots. And I think that is what broke his plan. He didn't he didn't anticipate the police being on the scene so fast and reacting the way that they did. So once he sees that, he retreats and he drops the gun. And when I say dropping, he intentionally puts it down and leaves it. And he's dressed with a wig and a dress on. He, he has a women's clothes and a, and a wig. And he blends into the crowd and they don't suspect him. He, he goes on by them. The main thing is he doesn't have a gun in his hand. If he had had that gun, that would have been a totally different discussion. But since he puts the gun down, they don't suspect him at the time. They find those images of him on people's um, video cameras that were recording the streets. And they realize put two and two together, realize he's the one they're looking for. But by this time he's gone. And they trace his cell phone signal to Madison, Wisconsin. And I think that's where they found his cell phone. But they arrested him. I'm uh, not 20 miles from uh, the scene of the shooting. He came back to Illinois and, 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 and he was driving his mother's on, car.
2: And, and, and and okay, well, substitute put me in there and, and they stopped me in my car. You know, I'm lying on the ground and they're going to handcuff me and bring me back alive. I mean, it, it, the contrast is just I'm, just, I'm shaking my head.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know. I can remember uh, a number of years ago when I was in the Indiana National Guard. I was going to training at Camp Atterbury, Indiana, and I was in the uh, OCS program. And one of the instructors I had was an Indianapolis police officer. And I don't know how we got to talk about it after hours. We had been dismissed to go home, but you know, the training was over. And we're just talking you know, soldier to soldier, guy to guy. And I was maybe one of two African-Americans in this group of about seven or eight people talking about our interactions with the police. And I asked him, I said, why is it every time I have interaction with a police officer, he either puts his hand on his gun or he pulls his gun out and he was explaining to me, you know what that was about? I said, you know, when you do that to me, I said I become instantly defensive. When you grab your gun and I haven't done anything, then I become defensive because I don't know what you're going to do. And now I'm, you know defensive because I may have to defend myself. that's my thinking. And he was explaining to me not to do this. And finally, he said, well, you need to understand something." And I said, what?" And he said, you're a big guy. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, you're over six feet tall. He said, you're 200 pounds. He said, the average cop is not your size. He said, if he is, you know, he's equal your size. He said, so the police officer in the back of his mind is thinking, if something, if this interaction goes bad, and I have to get him handcuffed, can I get him handcuffed before, you know, he takes my gun away from me and does something to me." He said, that's what they're afraid of, is that there will be a fight and that you might get the upper hand and they are afraid of your size. And yet, you know, it, it took me a while to understand that. And like I told him, I said, you know, I didn't see myself as big. And he said, you're a big guy. He said, you are. And I said, okay. But then think about, like I told him where I came from. My mother in her stocking feet was five foot 11. I'm six foot two. Um, my dad's six foot five. My grandfather's six foot five. Uh, my mom's grandfather was, or my mom's dad was about six feet tall. I've got somewhere around 40 cousins in Indianapolis of central Indiana, and most of the guys are around six feet tall. Most of the girls are somewhere between five foot four and five foot eight. So my point to him and to, to everyone listening is that I never grew up thinking I was a big guy. Everybody in my family, this was you know, the size of the people I grew up with. But I had to learn what he was trying to tell me was that other people that don't know me see me coming and think, damn, he's a big guy. And the cop is thinking, can I control him by myself? And I think that's part of the thinking that a lot of police officers are going through when they feel the need to pull the gun, you know, to fire the gun because they're afraid of what can happen and police interactions with other people have gone bad and there's lots of history behind that. But we should not look at all these cases Together collectively. We need to look at them individually and figure out what happened and why. And then you'll start to see that there are patterns and that there are things that both the police officer and the person they're interacting with have done that maybe if they had done something a little bit different, things wouldn't have gone this way. The problem becomes the individual who's interacting with the police officer doesn't always understand that and doesn't understand, you know, how far they can go or they think, you know, you've been you've been taught you have all these rights and the police officer has no right to arrest you or do anything to you if you haven't committed a crime. This is true. But also what we are not told and we don't understand is that the police officer, if he believes you've done something wrong, he has the right and the responsibility to arrest you. And if you do not comply and go willingly, he has the right, the authority to make you comply. And this is where we get into you know, the beatings and the shootings is that person's not complying and you hear people especially some white people say if they would just comply this wouldn't happen and that's just not true um because there may be a few times when someone was guilty and someone should have gone along and they refused but more often than not we're finding out either it's something petty or these people haven't really done anything at all and it escalates into a point of where the police officer feels that he needs to get physical with the individual and then it goes bad and then you find out later they really didn't do anything or they didn't do anything that warranted that. But at that point, you're at contempt of cop. The cop told you to do something. You didn't do what he told you to do. And now he's going to make you do it. And oftentimes people are saying, you can't make me. I didn't do anything wrong. And then you have this standoff and this standoff escalates in a matter of seconds. And this standoff often ends terribly. And unfortunately I'm not condemning the police totally, but I think we all need to think about especially the police officers the police officer is the professional in this mm-hmm. he is the one that's paid to understand how people think and react in that as they now call it de-escalate situations and if the police officer doesn't do that it can spin out of control very fast and quite often it spins out of control because people just do not take uh contempt of their authority well um and you this also goes into if you, I know we have, have heard this. But others, if they haven't, they they will. They should. The school-to-prison pipeline. This same type of thinking starts in elementary school. When a kid doesn't do what the teacher said to the letter, the teacher gets upset, sends the kid to the office. The kid gets suspended, and before long, the kid gets a reputation as a troublemaker, as a you know bad kid, and they start the process of tracking all the the discipline react interactions this child's had. And before long, the kid is a teenager, 14, 15 years old, mm-hmm. and now he interacts with the police, and they say, oh, he's got a bad school record, and now he's in the criminal justice system.
2: Right, which is another uh, two or three episodes of Britain Yes, All another discussion. Because, because we're hearing accounts now and articles are coming out now of the quote-unquote system within the walls yes. and what goes yeah. on. But while we have a chance, we have about less than uh, five minutes, I did want to get one more idea, and wow. we've been listening for close to an hour or two. Um, PhD student and researcher, and we're going to have to, to quickly get you elevated to, to doctor, but PhD student and researcher Leon Bates. Uh, he's joining us to share some insight into his research on national police action shooting deaths of blacks. And earlier, um, several weeks ago, he was on to talk about lynching in Indiana. This man has done uh, much research. And you began with your final response to begin to tell us Okay, we've talked about the horrors, we talked about the psychology. Now we're beginning now to talk about what can we do to improve things? And I know we only have five minutes left, so yes, we can solve all the problems now, I know that. But nevertheless, I'll let you start off and then I'm gonna defer to Liz. I know she's got a final few questions. So we have about five minutes left before I jump back in.
0: Um, it's not gonna be easy to solve this problem and it won't be solved quick. We didn't get here overnight, we won't get out of it overnight it probably the very first thing that we all have to do, I don't care if you're African-American, I don't care if you're you know European, American, Asian, it doesn't matter. We all have to stop and think and remember and learn that we all have biases. It's a natural thing, but it's how we handle and control those biases that will begin to change this. And we begin to understand how we see each other, how we have to see each other as humans as you know, see each other's humanity. And if we don't, um, and I'll give you one quick example is when the police department and they will say they do this for expediency, but you and I are after our number one males. Liz is a number one female. We have been reduced now to numbers. This is how they talk about us when, you, when they talk on the radio, when they write their reports, number one male you've been dehumanized and reduced to a number. And that is just one of the little things that we need to understand is problematic if we're gonna stop this. The other thing is right now what's happening with Jalen Walker is the quote experts are coming out and they're now assassinating his character. So that by the time we get to talking about investigation and trials, uh, he will ha- he will be the worst thing since uh, since John Dellinger in Indiana He or in the Midwest we're we reflexively jump to the defense of the police officer in the assassination of the let's say accused right now without actually getting all the facts and finding out that this is a bigger story and that we all play a part in this and if we don't do our part to learn and try and change it it will not change
2: okay liz one more
1: question i think we have okay i have something that um about this book, I still think that people ought to read this book, The, the New Jim Crow, Jim Crow yeah. <laughs> by Michelle Alexander. Yeah. It is still relevant today. And I want to read just one sentence out of this book. Um, it it was the foreword was written by uh our favorite man, Cornel West, mm-hmm. and he said this: Martin Luther King Jr. called for us to be love struck with each other. Not colorblind toward each other. To be love struck is to care, to have deep compassion, and to be concerned for each and every individual, including the poor and the vulnerable. And I believe that that's true because I know, you know, uh, Gladys Devane had written a book, and the first story in her book was Inside the Skin of a Black Man. And I think that's something that even black women and white men and white women should try to understand being inside the skin of a black man and and just try to understand what that's like because most of the laws that have been made has been against black men in this country. And so, and the script always changes. Once we get the laws figured out on how to protect black men not to lynch you anymore so that you won't become the strange fruit hanging from a tree, then the script is flipped. Now what we do is lynch black men another way, mass incarceration. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Once that script is flipped, then we shoot you in the back. And then if we ever figure out how to stop doing that, the script is flipped, it's always flipped, there's always a way. And then there's always that fear of of black men. So we need to really work on that because it's been going on far too long. As far as I'm concerned, I don't get shooting anybody in the back. And, And I don't get shooting somebody 41 times, 50 times, 60 times. And I know you're explaining it, Leon. I can't wrap my brain around it. And I'm sure that many of our listening audience can't wrap the brain around shooting somebody and how you can get off. I don't care what your job is. I, I, I Leon, you, you haven't explained that to me enough this evening for me to get that. <laughs> I, I just, can you explain that any more than what you have?
0: No, you can't explain it any more than that. And it took me a while to get to where I am. I mean, I read several books about it, but I wanna say this, and I think it will help if we keep in mind what I, James Baldwin said. Ignorance allied with power is the most ferocious enemy justice can have. Hmm. And if we think about that and we try to change the ignorance, other things will happen. And ignorance is not an insult. Ignorance means that we don't know don't understand the situation.
2: I think on that note, we're going to have to In this conversation, of course, we can go on, which means that Leon stay near the phone, we plan to call you again very shortly, but our thanks to PhD student and researcher Leon Bates for joining us to discuss his research on national police action shooting deaths of blacks. And bring it on as an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this
1: program, please let's hear it send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at
2: wfhb.org. Bringiton, executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is Liz Mitchell. Our show consultant and WFHB news department director is Kate Young. Program engineer is Chantal LaFontante. Original theme music was created by Jamil Lefia, with additional background tracks by David Baker. And for WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone.
1: And I'm Liz Mitchell. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB.